Hi, welcome to Light the Camera Author. I'm Jim Juno, and this is where we talk with authors who write about classic Hollywood, music, and entertainment. And I have with me today a very special guest. His name is Spencer Lee, and he has a new book coming out called Little Richard, Give Me Some Lovin'. And Spencer, welcome to Light Camera Author. Hi, Jim. Good to talk to you. And uh, let's talk about Little Richard. Yes, indeed. And Richard Penniman was his real name. And um, now, for those of you who are listening in, and you may have noticed that Spencer has a slight accent. Where where are you coming from today, Spencer? Well, I suppose you'd say it's a Scouse accent, but I, I, I come from Liverpool. Yeah, home of the Beatles. Oh, home of the Beatles. Oh, my gosh. The Cavern Club is still around? Oh, yeah. I just walked by the other day, actually. I mean, it's great. The sites are all there in Liverpool. Um, I mean, some have gone now, but there's, there's uh, some very good things up. And it's, it's great for tourists. What, one, wonderful, in fact. Fantastic. Um, I, I, I just love walking around the city. And you only have to look a little bit further up and you see what the old city was like as well. You know, and those wonderful old buildings. Fantastic. And in, in and, fact, a few months ago, Judy Collins was in Liverpool. And I said, oh. to, and I, after we'd done the interview, I said, have you got uh, five minutes for me to take you a little walk from the radio station? And she said, sure. And we went around the corner and there's a back street there and it's called Manistee's Lane. And Amazing Grace was written by John Newton, who was a slave ship, a slave ship owner. And he was caught in a storm and he said to God, if you save me, I won't be doing this anymore. And he was saved and he became a minister and he wrote Amazing Grace. And the person who owned the slave the slave ship um, came from Liverpool with someone called Manistees, and so there was Manistees Lane there, and so that was the, the background to her song, really. Oh my gosh, that's fantastic! I mean, and um, I was uh, Judy Collins. Are you talking about the song? I've looked at clouds from both sides now. Well, Amazing Grace was talking about. Oh, Amazing Grace. Okay. Yeah. All right. Anyway. Yeah, but and now for those of you who are wondering what the Beatles have to do with Little Richard, first off, shame on you, okay? Because you should know that when the Beatles were, I guess you would say, first starting out, they they actually opened for Little Richard when he toured when he toured the UK. Yeah, well, they were a huge influence on. on the... Little Richard was a huge influence on the Beatles. There's no doubt about that. And indeed, uh, from about 1963 onwards, every single show that the Beatles did, they ended with Little Richard's Long Tall Sally. That's how influential he was to them. And they saw Little Richard when he came over to, to the UK. He appeared at the Tar Ballroom in New Brighton with about seven or eight other Merseybeat groups. And that was a very important uh, event because these Merseybeat groups were seeing how the songs they were singing should be sung, as it were, by Little Richard. And um, Brian Epstein had a single coming out on the Beatles on Parlophone called Love Me Do. And he thought the way to promote it was to put on a show at the Liverpool Empire. And he invited Little Richard at the end of his tour to be on this bill as well. And so Little Richard was on the show 
followed by the Beatles, followed by a British singer called uh, Craig Douglas. And the show went it went very well indeed. And then Little Richard went over to the Star Club in Hamburg, and this was at the same time as the Beatles, so we got to know the Beatles then. And the Beatles saw what a great guy he was. I mean, he was an amazing stage performer. Uh, when I saw him in 1963, and this has been confirmed by Keith Richards' autobiography, because I saw Little Richard, Bo Diddley, the Everly Brothers, and the Rolling Stones all on one show, which was magnificent. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, but the Rolling Stones were bottom of the bill because Mickey Most was bottom of the bill and he was the worst by a long, long way. But uh, Little, Little Richard was, was on the tour and Keith Richard writes in his autobiography that on those 30 dates, uh, everywhere he went, Little Richard would go to the theatre and he'd check out where the entrances were, the exits and the entrances. And so every show was different because he worked out where he was going to come on and what he was going to do. And when I saw him at the Odeon in Liverpool, uh, Sounds Incorporated, who were backing him, were doing the pounding rhythm of Lucille, and he just went on and on and on. He went on for about three minutes, and there was no Little Richard. There was just this noise, this introduction from Lucille. And I thought, where is he? Where's Little Richard? Everyone was wondering this. And then he comes right in from the back of the stage, hollering and screaming, yeah, gets up to the stage. He jumped on the stage. He was a very athletic guy. Jumped on the stage and then pounds into Lucille. And the place was in a pro, it was fantastic. And the previous year, when he was in Liverpool, 1962, he was on tour with uh, Sam Cooke. And he was originally going to be doing gospel songs, but he saw that Sam Cooke was getting such a good reaction that he thought, I can't possibly be second to Sam Cooke. I've got to go back to rock and roll. And he went back to rock and roll. And during that tour, when he appeared in Liverpool, he was singing away frantically and suddenly, how? He collapsed on the floor and the compere Bob Bain came out and said, little Richard has collapsed. Something's happened to him. Is there a doctor in the house? Is there a doctor anywhere? Please, little Richard's very ill. And some uh, some John's ambulance people came out on a stretcher and put him on a stretcher and they were carrying him out to the theatre. And as they were carrying him out to the theatre, little Richard leapt up and went, a wop, bop, a loop, bop, a lop, bam, boom. <laughs> I mean, this, this guy was completely bonkers, if that's an American word, completely nuts. And he was fantastic. And it was quite unlike anything else that we'd ever seen on the stage. And I, I just love Little Richard. And his, his story is uh, magnificent. I mean, he, he was someone who was always on show, really. The camera was always on him. That's right. I mean, he was he was a magnificent performer. And... Um... He, uh, but did he have any issues? I'll, I'll use that word, issues in his private life. Because, I mean, he would leave rock and roll and go over to gospel and then leave gospel and go back to rock and roll. So he had, he had that, had that issue about going to whatever, whatever genre he was, he was having at the moment. Well, the sort of preachers that he liked were were members of the Seventh Day Adventists and people, and he liked the preachers who were very declamatory, who were who 
really was show an element of showbiz too, and Richard could preach like that. So he was really go almost going from one brand of show business to another. I mean, what happened with Little Richard was that he went on tour to Australia in 1957, and the Russians had sent up the Sputnik. You may remember the Sputnik. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, everybody knew that Russia was launching this space uh, vessel, but Little Richard took it as a sign from God. Heaven knows why, but he did. And he thought that the end of the world was coming and the world was going to end within three weeks. And so he wow. then thinks, and I mean, everything about Little Richard is very illogical. You, you, can't, you can't fathom it out rationally, which was a problem with the book, really. And Little Richard thinks... Well, if the world's going to end in three weeks, I better enroll in a theological college and become a minister. That's <laughs> going to take you a few years to do that. So, you know, there's no point in that if he believed that. So he probably didn't believe that. But he, he goes back to America. He then gets ordained and he then becomes a preacher. Um, but he still liked the limelight. And in fact, he came to England on tour and he was rocking and rolling in England and he thought that the church in America because you know communications weren't what they were um, now the the people in America wouldn't know that he was rocking and rolling and right. uh, so he rock and rolled over here whereas he was uh, a minister in the States in fact Don Everly uh, told me that he went into a supermarket once and found Little Richard preaching there so Little Richard was all over the place really um, but he, he, he didn't he didn't really have it Issues. I mean, he lived his life according to his own uh, timetable, really, Little Richard time, as it were. And uh, he, he could change his attitudes and his opinions in, in a second or two. And it, it was hard to fathom him out. I mean, I, I remember the last time I saw Little Richard in Liverpool was, I think it was 2002, maybe a few years after that, um, at a big show in Liverpool with Little Richard, Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis all on the same show. I know from the promoter that all three of them had contracts that they weren't to meet each other. They all had to go into the theatre and be in such a position that they would never see the other performers. I don't know why that was, what was going on between them. It may have been because none of them wanted to appear on stage with the other. They didn't want to get up and jam or do anything like that. So it was it was three separate sets. Um, I did try and get a, 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 an interview with Little Richard that night, and he was surrounded by um, thugs, really. I mean, there's no other word for them, really tough guys who said, there's no way you can speak to Little Richard, even though I'd, I'd made some advances earlier earlier on, you know, and, and tried to get something set up. Um, but he came on there um, in Liverpool, an audience, I suppose, of about 4,000 people. Um, and there he said, are there any Jewish people in the audience? And he wanted people to put their hands up. Now, in Liverpool, the Jewish community is... Uh, very small. I doubt if it's more than three or four hundred. So you're only going to get a few hands up at the most there. But I, I thought, is he doing his Las Vegas act here where you get far more people putting their hands up? But, I, I, you know, what was his mindset there? Why did he want why did he want that? Um, and did he still think the world was going to end soon? And what happened when it didn't end soon, when he thought it was? You know, how did he justify it to himself? He he was a, a mysterious person, certainly, but, but immense fun. And, of course, 
he used his religion um, to get out of doing things. Stuart Coleman made an album with him in London in 1985 and said that Little Richard would just come into the studio and say, the Lord has told me I mustn't sing today. And you can't argue with that. Yeah. <laughs> Quite often he got out of shows by saying, the Lord has told me I mustn't do this today. And so he, he wouldn't do it. Uh, you know, it'd be interesting if that, if that sort of approach was tested in court, but he seemed to get away <laughs> with it. And he got out of doing a number of things that he, he didn't want to do with, with that stance. That would kind of work for anything, right? I mean, <laughs> the Lord told me I didn't want to go to work today, you know. So <laughs> exactly, if every if everybody did it, nothing would be done. <laughs> and and yeah. how, how does he know the Lord has told him that? Exactly. Yeah, and uh, a lot of people consider Little Richard the father of rock and roll, but you say in your book that that's not really true. He uh, he had early influences of his own, didn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, very little actually comes from nowhere. Everybody's got influences around them. Um, in this country, we knew Little Richard's influences even less than the American audiences did, because records by people like Louis Jordan uh, were known over here. We didn't know the, the old blues records over here. So he got all these influences, Louis Jordan's Caledonia, for example, and he was building on that and creating his own music. I mean, the the introduction of Good Golly Miss Molly was just pinched from an old record from the 40s. And he was doing that sort of thing uh, the whole time. But he was putting his little spin on them. And his records are like one long scream. I mean, they're, they're terrific, his best records, things like Tutti Frutti and the like. I mean, Tutti Frutti was actually... Uh, a dirty song that, that, that was uh, sung by a number of people and uh, the lyrics were cleaned up. But of course, I mean, that start of that record when Little Richard is going, oh, wop, bop, loo, bop, bop, bam, boom. That, that's really the battle cry of rock and roll. Exactly. And he got, he got ripped off terribly uh, during the 50s because, of course, being a black artist in that era, you cannot, you, you know, he faced opposition for getting his music aired, but also Pat Boone ripped. I'm sorry if Pat Boone's listening to this, but sorry it happened. He got ripped off terribly by yeah, Pat I, Boone. I, yeah, I actually don't think it, it. I don't think it was racism there. I think. I think it. I think it was young people against the world. Really, people who were young and inexperienced and didn't know much about life, and they were being ripped off, whether they were black or white, and having hit records. Um, I mean, there were examples in this country, uh, in in England, with Larry Parnes, who was who thought that if an artist had a day off work, that was a day he wasn't earning money, you know. And Joe Brown told me he worked three hundred days a year for Larry Parnes. So these people were workhorses. Um, but Buddy Knox, who had uh, a number one hit in America with Party Doll, you may remember that record. Yeah. And he went up, he he was in New York, and he went up to see his boss, uh, the person who was managing him, Morris Levy, who also owned Roulette Records, and said, shouldn't I have uh, some money, some more money, because I wrote Party Doll, this number one in America. And Morris Levy said to him, uh, you see that car down there, that Cadillac down there? And uh, Buddy Knox said, yes. And he said, well, you've got two choices. I can either give you the keys for that Cadillac and we'll say nothing more about it, or you can land on top of it. And, <laughs> wow. 
And and Morris Levy, in fact, is the basis for one of the characters in The Sopranos, the person from The Sopranos who came from the record industry is based on Morris Levy. So the white guys were getting ripped off as well as the black guys. Now, when it came to uh, the black guys, it's very interesting with Little Richard because he certainly criticizes Pat Boone for doing his songs badly. And Pat Boone did do his songs badly and amended the lyrics too in in a crass way too. But Elvis Presley recorded three or four Little Richard songs. And Little Richard loved Elvis Presley and he loved Elvis doing his songs. The Beatles did Long Tall Sally and Little Richard loved that. So, you know, that that wasn't racism really. I mean, Little Richard, when, when, Little, when the Beatles started doing Little Richard songs, Little Richard was a bit passe by then because rock and roll had passed by and they were they were bringing it back and that was a good thing. Uh, Little Richard uh, found Elvis did the songs very well, but Pat Boone just didn't have the voice for rock and roll. No. He was fine with things like Love Letters in the Sand and his whistling and that is great, but he couldn't he couldn't do those songs. But it it wasn't really racism, although of course in some households white kids would only buy white records. Their, their parents wouldn't want them to have black music in there. So in a way, Little Richard's uh, songs were getting to them that way. Um, Little Richard was ripped off too. Um, you know, his songwriting royalties weren't all, weren't all that they uh, should have been. Um, and and, that, and that, again, that was a white guy who was running uh, speciality records. But I mean, it, it was just typical of the time. Um, if if you if you wanted to make some money in the record industry, you find young kids who you who, who you could actually swindle, and it ha- it happened again and again and again. It may still be happening too. Yeah, yeah. Well, pe- people people get lawyers and things in now. I mean, yeah. I, I I would think that literature and and everybody else they just signed the pieces of papers and they they didn't really think much about them, um, and of course they they came to regret it somewhat down the line. An interesting point is that years later, Michael Jackson, at the height of his fame, buys the Beatles songwriting catalogue. And when he buys that catalogue, he finds that there are other things with it. It comes with other songs as well that uh, the publishing company owned. And that included some of Little Richard's songs. And Michael Jackson, because he loved Little Richard, gave them to Little Richard. And Little Richard did actually die a millionaire because of that. Yeah, I didn't know that. That is because I always thought that he was scraping by for for a buck. But no, he actually later in yeah. life he was actually well doing well. Well, he he wasn't doing well because he had a, he had a lot of trouble with his with his hips and he and he he hated doctors and he didn't want to have surgery, and he preferred to live in hotels rather than his home. So he preferred to live in hotels where things could be done for him, um, because he had the songwriting royalties and the like. He could he could then uh, indulge himself in that, and so uh, he was in the the Hyatt Hotel in Los Angeles and many other hotels. Did he have any? Do you think he had any regrets? Well, I think everybody has regrets. <laughs> you you know, uh, his career effectively ended in 1957 when he went in the ministry. And, that, and although he came back on a number of occasions, he never got back into the charts again. And I, I think, but I don't know, that he must have regretted that he didn't pursue other areas in more detail. For example, in 1964, he makes what I think is about the best record of his life, Called, I don't know what you got, but it's got me, 
and it makes it with Jimi Hendrix. And it is a fantastic record. And it sounds like Solomon Burke at its best. It's written by Don Covey. So probably it was written for an Atlantic artist, Solomon Burke. And Little Richard somehow got hold of this song. His performance is magnificent and it spreads over both sides of the record. Why he never did anything else like that, I've no idea. Um, you know, someone should have said, look what you're doing, Little Richard. Make an album like Solomon Burke. And then... A few years later, he was doing some sort of disco uh, Black Soul records, which in the 1970s were picked up in the northwest of England and became classics at the Wigan Casino. And those are very good records. But again, you don't hear much of them. He didn't he didn't pursue that at all. So his career from about 1963 onwards is a series of one-off events and he needed someone to structure, structure him and tell him do this this is good for you this is bad for you you know and 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 plan his career right and uh, he didn't have that he was he was too impulsive he, he did things and and then he forgot about them and then of course people he became unreliable because of this uh, saying of his the lord told me uh, not, not to do this today so people couldn't guarantee that he would turn up for things or what would happen the lord wasn't giving him very good advice <laughs> exactly yes yes he had the had the wrong advice <laughs> did he have a feud with jerry lee lewis Sort of. I mean, Jerry, Jerry Lee Lewis is a spiky character anyway, and has, yeah. has a few with, with with pretty well everyone. And they all regarded themselves as the king of rock and roll, this sort of braggadocio thing that, that they did. But he was he he wasn't a, a, a mean spirited person at all. I mean, Chuck Berry just went through the motions. You could tell as he went on stage. Um, and was just doing it for the money, paid up front and everything, and no real interest in what he was doing. Little Little Richard uh, loved to entertain, um, and he, lo he loved the acclaim. Um, and he was quite different in style from uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. Um, he might have thought from some of the things that Jerry Lee Lewis said that Jerry Lee Lewis was rather racial, because I think he was in those early years. So there may, there may have been uh, some conflict there. But they they didn't uh, they didn't work together very much. They they saw each other on odd shows. Yeah. I t did he? Uh, did he, anything surprise you when you were doing research into this book? Um, of course, I believe you met him a couple of times, right? Well, I did. I didn't get to interview him. No, right. <laughs> I just right. met people who right. said I couldn't, couldn't interview him. But um, I mean, he said the same thing to pretty well everyone. So you, 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 I've got lots and lots of interviews, and there was a very good book written on him in 1985, which was his autobiography, uh, where he comes out as completely bonkers in that book. And I, I'm, t I'm trying to sort of balance that book in in some way, because I mean, a part, a part of him, part of him being bonkers. Is because he knows that show business. You know, this this is a good image to portray. He's enjoyed doing that, um, but I don't think he was someone seriously who sat down and read things. He he said on many occasions, the only book I've ever read is the Bible, um, which I'd I'd find hard to believe because I mean, once you can read, you know, you want to read books. <laughs> so he he was a a, a strange uh, character, but. Um, in later years, he did he did some Hollywood films as well, and I thought it came over well in those. 
um, Down and Out in Beverly Hills with Richard Dreyfuss. That's a, yeah. that's a good that's a good film. Um, and there's, there's there's quite a few things where where people really just wanted Little Richard in the film um, being Little Richard, and it was fine. And he also made some children's albums for Disney, um, and It's a Bitsy Spider and uh, familiar songs like that, and did them with great fun and playfulness. And I, I thought came over very well and worked with the kids very well. So uh, he he almost found a, another career as a children's entertainer, you know. Oh, fantastic. He's someone, who, yeah. someone who wouldn't look odd alongside the Muppets. <laughs> <laughs> I remember him uh, did a, a video of Good Golly, I believe it was Good Golly Miss Molly, with, uh, with John Goodman from the movie yeah. uh, King Ralph. Yes, yeah, and uh, that's it. He he did a lot of these cameo parts and and did and did them really well, and he had his voice pretty well to the end. Is is um you know his vo his voice was magnificent. Um, you know I'm not, I'm not making claims that he was Pavarotti or anything, but he 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 really could sort of get up into the higher register and he could scream and it it, it was very 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 exciting and it, and he was great to watch. I mean even now I think he was he was probably the most exciting person that I ever saw on stage. Well, fantastic. Well, the book is Little Richard, Give Me Some Lovin'. The author's name is Spencer Lee, and the book is published by McNitter and Grace. And it comes out, I believe, on New Year's Eve in the States, December 31st. Yeah, and, I mean, and, yeah, 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 norm, yeah, normally with McNitter and Grace, um, the books come out in the UK, and then they take it takes a while for the books to be transported to America or Australia, so it comes out a little bit later there. But uh, they've got a new setup now where, where the the book is actually being printed in America as well. So uh, people will be able to get it uh, pretty soon, certainly. And I want to correct myself, little Richard. Send me some love, but not give yeah, me well, some that's love. A, yeah, that's the title of one of his songs, Send Me Some Loving. It was one of his yeah. B-sides, a plaintive B-side. And uh, it, it showed that uh, he could sing great romantic songs if he wanted to. He could sing almost anything if he wanted to. But most of the time, he didn't want to. And he was quite happy singing Bamalama, Bamaloo and such like. <laughs> well, Spencer Lee, thank you for being on Lights Camera Author today. Thank you very much. Good to talk to you, Jim.